Morning, good morning. Welcome to Faith this Lord's Day. We're in a, a sermon series on fighting the good fight. Fighting the good fight, good warfare language, right? Many of us don't know a lot about warfare, but I bet we know a lot about football. Someone has uh, described football as 70,000 people desperately needing exercise, watching 22 men desperately needing rest. That's kind of what football is. We're talking about American football here. I'm sorry, soccer friends. Football, American football. Um, in football, a quarterback will come up to the line of scrimmage, and um, he'll, 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 they have a play that's been planned in the huddle, and he looks over the line of scrimmage and sees that the defense is anticipating what they will do very well and that the play might not work. And so he, he does what's called a counter move. Well, what it's called is an audible, an audible, which is a counter move. He can see that they know what he's going to do when they're just waiting for it. So the audible is called. He might yell, yellow 49 or rhino or Omaha. And you can kind of hear it sometimes on the TV. And it says to all of his players, forget about what we said in the huddle. This is what you're going to do, this pre-planned audible, this counter move because of what the enemy the defense is doing. And so they run that play. They run a short pass instead of a long pass or to the right instead of a reverse to the left or whatever it is. They change the play in a moment. It's, an, it's a counter move to what the defense has done. God has a strategy and God is very aware of the enemy and God has a counter move. And that's what we're talking about today. I want to talk about that today. Uh, we've been saying that God's strategy is to change, to change the world through his church. And uh, to do this, the church must be healthy. And a healthy church begins with healthy leaders. And so the Apostle Paul is continuing here in 2 Timothy 3 to address Timothy, his spiritual son in the faith. And in chapters three, chapter 3, 1 to 9, we heard the scripture reading earlier. And if you listen to it carefully, it's a day that sounds like our day, a day of incredible selfishness and narcissism and people are without natural affection and they're greedy and slanderous and abusive and they don't love that which is good and there's violence and there's, it's a time of just cultural insanity. And there's also, he says, there, there's a religion but it lacks true power. A, a, a form of religion but it lacks, it lacks the, true, the true power of true faith, true religion. <coughs> Paul calls these the last days. And what follows in verses 10 to 17, our text today, is Paul telling Timothy that despite Satan's move to bring such despair and sin into the world, God has a counter move. God has a counter move. In one sense, God, knowing Satan's strategy, calls an audible. Although God knows all things and knew what Satan was going to do, but that's another, another sermon. The text today is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 to 17, and it's on the overhead to your right. Let's listen to the ESV translation of God's holy word. <clears throat> you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, Lystra which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, 
and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God's word for us. My title is God's Last Day's Countermove. God's Last Day's Countermove. The Lord provides what we need to walk in godliness during these last days, these ungodly days that, that we see in the, in the scripture in, in the world. <clears throat> in the text, we're going to see three countermoves, a, three, a threefold countermove that God brings to the cosmic conflict. The first is an alternative, alternative life. Second is an alternative truth. And third, an alternative community. Life, a truth, a community. That's a counterculture alternative to what we see during the last days. First, in verses 10 to 13, chapter 3. He says, you, however. This is a, so it contrasts, again, to the, the ungodliness of the last days. And, and, and last days is an interesting phrase in the Bible. In, in Joel chapter 2, there's a prediction about the last days. In Acts chapter 2, the Pentecost sermon, uh, Peter connects it, what happens at the day of Pentecost, to the last days. In Hebrews chapter 1, we see that the last days is simply the time when, 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 when the Messiah has come. That's the last days. It's the time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. So we now are now living in the last days. That's clear. And he doesn't seem to say that, it, that, that evil will get worse and worse. There's something there. But we are in the last days, and we have been even during the time where this was written. J John Stott, talking about the first nine verses, these last days, 19 marks of, of, a mis of, of misdirected love, empty hypocritical religion, and the cult of the open mind. Stott says this, We are to love God and neighbor and not misdirect our love to self, money, or pleasure. We're to value the reality and power of religion above its outward forms. And we're to submit humbly to God's revelation and not cultivate a wishy-washy, undemanding agnosticism. That's a, that's a summary of verses 1 to 9. And so the Apostle Paul says, Timothy, you have followed me. You know me, Timothy. You've seen me. You've watched me. You know who I am. He lists some qualities in himself and things about himself that Timothy clearly recognizes in verses 10. Verse 10. <clears throat> Teaching, conduct, aim in life, faith, patience, love, steadfastness. Timothy's thinking, yeah, 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 I know those things. Verse 11, he lists three cities that trigger memories for Timothy because he lived in that region. Antioch is Antioch Pisidia. In Acts chapter 13, Paul's, Paul, Paul's, Paul and Barnabas, the journey began. And they were, Paul and Barnabas were chased out of town of Antioch. Then Iconium in chapter 14 of Acts, the Jews and Gentiles, they combined to seek to kill Paul and Barnabas, and they escaped to nearby towns. <coughs> and then there's uh, the city of, of Lystra, uh, Acts 14. And that's a city where, where there was a healing of a crippled man. And the people, when they saw the healing, they said, Paul and Barnabas, you are Zeus and Hermes. You are the gods come down to earth. And they, tried, and they began to worship Paul and Barnabas there. And Paul and Barnabas said, no, 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 don't, don't worship us. We're just men. But they, they didn't really, they, they wanted to worship Paul and Barnabas. Then, then the text says in Acts 14 that the Jews 
from Iconium and, their, and the other cities, they came to begin to talk to the people there and convince them that Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas were heretics. And, and they agreed. And so the, the, the story then continues that Paul and Barnabas are taken outside the city and, 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 and Paul is stoned. That, that doesn't mean he got high on marijuana. That means they threw rocks on him to kill him. They stoned him. And they thought they were successful because he was laying there. And they walked away rejoicing that they had probably killed him. And the, the, it says the believers came around. And I guess they prayed. didn't say that, but I guess they prayed. Or, and, and then all of a sudden, Paul came back to life. Was he dead or was he almost dead? We don't know. Not, it's not the, not the importance of the text, but, but he was raised. Now, it says the disciples were there. Well, may, maybe Timothy he might have been one of the young ones that was there. And they have seen that miracle. We don't know. But all he says is, you remember what happened in Lystra? And Timothy says, Boy, do I remember what happened to you in Lystra. He says, God delivered him. He, he reminds him that, 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 that the, it wasn't because of anything in him, but it was God who brought him back to life. But then he continues to remind him, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Maybe he's thinking back to, to Saul in chapter 7 of Acts, where he was there. He's saying, Timothy, don't, don't think that, that being a leader is going to be easy. Evil people and apostles will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Don't think ministry will be smooth and easy. The godly people can count on being misunderstood by a godless world. God's counter move, his first part of his counter move, is to pour his spirit out upon an individual who will live a countercultural life. Specifically in this passage, Paul's reminding Timothy that both of them, he and Timothy, have the particular calling as leaders in God's church, and that that calling implies suffering and pain. There's opposition to God's kingdom-building program. Some of you may not play football, but I bet some of you play soccer. Think of playing soccer on a soccer field, and if you're playing on the field and you're on the offense and there's no defense, I imagine you would score every time, wouldn't you? Because there's no defense. If you can't, you don't belong on the field. I mean, the goal's right there. Kick it and, go, and, and, and you win. But Paul is reminding Timothy that there's opposition. This is not going to be easy. It's not like kicking with no opposition. That ministry is tough. There's going to be opposition. There's an evil one who has captured the minds and hearts of, of, of human beings. Timothy needs to know that. We need to know that as we look at our own lives, as we look at our own church, we look at our own leadership in our church. The phrase man of God is seen two times in the New Testament. One is in 1 Timothy 6, 11. And the second is in 2 Timothy 3, 17, later in our passage. The phrase man of God. Now in the Old Testament, the people of God were burdened in Egypt and God appointed and anointed a man of God, Moses. Burning bush, he'd go talk to Pharaoh. Later, uh, King Saul was leading the people in his own carnal, egotistical way. And, and God raised up a man of God, David, a man after God's own heart, to be the leader and expand the kingdom. And then when, later, when Israel was at its height of idolatry, God raised up the prophet Elijah. 
who was over and over again in the, in, the, in the scriptures called the man of God, man of God. So what does God look, what God, God, God does is he, in these last days is he looks to raise up an individual, a group of individuals, a man of God. Paul, Paul is reminding Timothy that a godly man is a mighty weapon in God's hand against Satan. That's what he wants him to know. Timothy, be that weapon in God's hand. He also makes clear that <laughs> there's a cause. Persecution and suffering is normal for the one who wants to seriously follow the Lord Jesus. Think of church history. Just think of the life of, of a man named John Wycliffe in church history who, was, who wanted to stand for the word of God, for, for people to know the word of God in their own language. And now he was martyred, suffered and martyred for his faith. John Wycliffe. Now we have the Wycliffe Bible translators who named after him. One of the pre-reformers. Those who would seek to be godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You know, there's a heretical doctrine called the prosperity gospel that says that suffering is a sign of being out of favor with God. Second Timothy says, no, that, that, that's garbage. That's not true. Suffering just may be a sign that you're right in the center of God's will. It just might be. A leader is one who is to be an example who can say, follow me as I follow Christ. Somehow, you know, in this generation, that example thing has somewhat been lost. Many people, they say, when it, when, uh, when it comes to their pastor, they say, I want a minister, I want a pastor who understands all my issues because he himself has so many issues. Well, we do have issues, yes. <laughs> I'm not saying denying that. But we see, you know, I see preachers on TV, on some of these TV reality shows, who expose all their issues that they shouldn't have to the world, and as if it's entertainment. And what, what they're exposing is things that they're just saying, you shouldn't even be a pastor if that's your life. And you know what? The world knows it. The world knows it. The world says, see, that's the, that's the leaders, that's Christianity. Why do, I want, why do I want to be part of that crew? I, the sad part is, I'm not sure the church knows it. That somehow a leader, not perfect, but is, is the one who tries to lead in godliness, not just with words, but with the life that he seeks to live, a life of repentance and faith and walking with Jesus. Let me ask a question. You're going, are you going through tough times in your life? Are you questioning even whether you have real faith? Do you think that the tough times you're having are show, showing that you don't have real faith? That God is not with you? Well, it, it, it could be there may be some, some, it could be the Spirit's conviction, maybe, but that might not be what it is, folks. Your conscience might just, not, it might not be your conscience convicting you of sin. It may be that though you're going through difficult times and things aren't going smoothly for you, you are right in the center of God's will. Because the text says all who live, seek to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer. Some of that suffering is on the outside, some of it is on the inside. Timothy, as leader, he says, be ready. Realize that you will take lead in experiencing the suffering for the gospel. That's the norm. Just as Paul is leading, you lead, you will experience suffering. God's count, first part of his counter move is an alternative life, a life of godliness in a time of great ungodliness. The second alternate move is an alternative truth. The saving message of God's Son. 
that Timothy from childhood understood and embraced from, from Eunice and, and, and Lois, his mother and grandmother. He was acquainted from childhood. The word is actually, there's a word for children, there's a word for infants. This is a word for infants. So very little, very young, his grandma and mom began to train him in the scriptures. And he became acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation, which is through Christ Jesus, faith in Christ Jesus. <coughs> and he says, uh, again, look at the contrast. But, as for you, contrast. You know, there's godliness, but as for you. Just continue. The things you've learned, the things you've become firmly convinced of, firmly believed, and knowing from whom you've learned it. You learned it from uh, Lois and Eunice, and of course, in the years he spent with Paul, he learned it from Paul, watching Paul, being discipled by, by Paul. 2 Timothy 2, 2, the things you heard from me among many witnesses, pass them on to others who pass on to others. 2 Timothy 2, verse 2. Salvation, which is through faith, in Christ Jesus. The Old Testament reveals that salvation is, 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 is God's work, and, and Jesus Christ is revealed in the Old Testament. And, and, and he began to learn that as he began to understand more and more the fullness of the gospel. You know, some have experienced the, and are experiencing the pain of children who grow up in your house and, and walk away from the faith. We've experienced some of that. And, and you start to teach them and to live the life before them. It could, could it be due to somehow they have uh, false expectations of success and prosperity? That somehow following Jesus, things are going to be okay? Following Jesus, they will have no opposition. They will have no confrontation to the, the things that they believe. In a subtle way, maybe that's what they heard from us, though we did not try to say that. We just simply tried to maybe shield them or... We painted the picture that they will, they will leave the nest and, 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 and study and graduate and, and, and go on to conquer the world for Jesus with their faith intact. Maybe we should equip them not to conquer the world, but to understand the world, that the world is not on the path of godliness, but on the path of ungodliness. We need to train them that Christianity is a counter-cultural movement in the world. It was back then, and it still is. But think of, think of you and me. You know, that's, that's hard. No, nobody wants to be strange. Nobody wants to be weird. We hear this phrase, I'm a fool for Christ. Well, no one wants to be a fool. That's, that's the tug. That's the talk. But we need to train ourselves and train the next generation to have a strong view that the church is a counter-cultural movement in a world that doesn't believe. These last days, you see, we need a message from God, not just a life from God. We need a message from God, and we have that message in the gospel. And so often people are looking for a new message, a new theology, a new kind of ism. They think that the key or the secret of this fresh word will make things better and will solve everything. Listen, there's no secret <laughs> to what can make things better. It's already been revealed for us. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. That's the power of God for salvation. And it's right there. Romans 10 says, the word is right near you. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe with your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And Paul says, it's right there. He quotes from Deuteronomy there. It's right there. The gospel is not, God's not hiding it. 
Jared Packer, the theologian, says, the Bible as a whole, viewed from the standpoint of its contents, should be thought of not statistically, but dynamically. Not merely as what God said long ago, but as what he still says. And not merely as what he says to men in general, but as what he says to each individual reader or hearer in particular. In other words, Holy Scripture should be thought of as God preaching. God preaching to me every time I read or hear any part of it. God the Father preaching God the Son in the power of God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Yeah, Packer. You know, I, read, I saw a factoid in, in uh, Christianity Today Online this week, which was troublesome. The first part of it was that two-thirds of Americans think that God accepts the worship of all religions. That, wasn't, that was troublesome, but it wasn't surprising. But the other part surprised me. 48% of those who would confess to be Bible-believing Christians believe the same thing, that God accepts the worship of all religions. The article said, how did half of us somehow miss the first commandment? How do we miss it? Sadly, in our day, we're finding that people will try all kinds of solutions to the problems of our world, <coughs> but ignore the basics that God has already established, the basic things. This has been a troubling week here in Baltimore. As Wednesday, we had the tragic uh, 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 homicide of a, uh, the shooting of a homicide de detective, uh, Sean Souter. Um, you all have been, I'm sure, alert, alert, aware of that. He was uh, gunned down making a visit. You know, one glance at the news and it just it gets you depressing, doesn't it? You just you see the despair and the hopelessness and the illegal guns and the, the, the drugs and the corruption and the joblessness and the, the crisis of education and the family crisis and the powerlessness of the church. There's just a lot of hurt, a lot of pain, a lot of despair that's all around us. And people are looking for solid solutions. And that's good. There's a sense in the air of, we got, what's going on? What's, what's wrong here? Let me say, any solution that bypasses the message of the gospel is a weak solution. One that ultimately is doomed to fail. Transformation by Jesus Christ must be the starting point for anything that have lasting value. And believers, we need to understand that and believe that and propagate, promote that as we work in the city here. There's an alternative truth than the truth that the world is trying to live under. And that alternative truth is the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is still the power of God for salvation for all people. Well, the third counter move of God is an alternative people, an alternative community. Where do I see that? It's created by the anointed preaching by an ordained minister. Verses 16 and 17. All scripture, he says, is God-breathed, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness, that the man of God may be completely equipped for every good work. The church of Jesus Christ is created by the word of God. The word creates the church. The church doesn't create the word. And, and God uses the word proclaimed by a minister who stands before the people and unashamedly explains Holy Scripture, exalting Jesus Christ as the hope for the world. And, and, and he'll say in, in chapter 4, in season and out of season. In season, when it's popular. Out of season, when it's not popular. Now, Craig will talk more about that next week. But uh, that, that's where the, the word is what creates the church and what sustains the church. Now, <coughs> There, there are two, really, two words for minister 
uh, the, in, in the popular connotation. A minister is anyone who serves in the, in the kingdom, and that's true. We all are, in one sense, ministers. We serve the Lord Jesus Christ if we're, if we're a believer. We serve in his kingdom. But there's also the, a technical phrase, uses of, of the word minister, which is also used in, in the popular connotation. This is, or, this is clergy, ordained clergy, with especially those who are the prime leaders of local congregations. They're ministers, ministers of, of the gospel. And, and the ministry, in this technical sense, is a ministry of the word and sacrament. The ministry of word and sacrament. You hear that phrase. The, the authority of the minister resides not in him, himself as a person, but in the office that he holds, as Jesus Christ has called him. And this is, this is what is transferred in that moment of ordination when the hands are laid on a man and he is sanctioned by those already having that, that call, that authoritative call, and they lay hands on him and pray. And it was, it, there's an identification. There's a, there's a sharing of that authority with them that, 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 that takes place in that moment. You might recall Hebrews chapter 6, where the writer of Hebrews talks about six elementary things, simple things in the word of God. And one of them is the laying on of hands, this idea of leadership, of, of, of the substantiation of, of leaders for the, for the body of Christ. Tim was told in, in other parts of, of, of First and Second Timothy, do not neglect the gift which was given to you through the laying on of hands by the elders. And then Paul warns Timothy himself, don't lay hands on anyone too quickly. There's a special thing about the laying on of hands where ordination authority is given. Verse 16. <coughs> All scripture is breathed out by God. It's, it's, it's a compound word. Theos, nusos. Theos, God, nusos. The word pneumatic has to do with breathing and lungs and all that stuff, which I'm having problems with coughing and stuff. Pneuma. Theo, pneuma. It's a compound word. Scripture is God breathed. God breathed. That's the idea. Scripture is the word of God and the word of man. There's a combination thing going on. Uh, John Stott calls it double authorship. Stott says this, the way we understand scripture will affect the way we read it. In particular, it's, its double authorship demands a double approach. Because scripture is the word of God, we should read it as we read no other book on our knees, humbly, reverently, prayerfully, looking to the Holy Spirit for illumination. But because Scripture is also the words of human beings. We should read it as we read every other book, using our minds, thinking, pondering, reflecting, paying close attention to its literary, cultural, linguistic characteristics. This combination of humble reverence and critical reflection is not impossible. In fact, it's indispensable. It starts correct. Harold Berry, another author, uh, talks about the nature of this inspired word. The holy writings were given by God through human authors who penned the precise words that God desired them to select. God did not override the personalities or wills of the human authors. Rather, God worked through them in such a way that their personalities were preserved. And yet, a record was produced that was without error. What, what books are part of this thing called Scripture? In verse 15, it's clear. The Old Testament Scriptures was what Eunice and Lois uh, taught him. But some believe, and I think this makes sense, that as the first century progressed, books were being added, affirmed to be part of Holy Scripture. And, 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 and so when he's telling Timothy to, to uh, proclaim Scripture, it may include even some of the New Testament writings. 
See, Jesus gave the apostles the authority to write the New Testament. We need to understand that. Jesus, in the upper room, gave them the authority to write. He said, the Spirit will be the one who's going to remind you of all truth. You're going to be the ones, the agents of revelation. And so in verse 16, he may be speaking beyond just the Old Testament books. See, the, the canon or the list of books of the New Testament was in the process of being determined. Here's an important thing. <coughs> the early church did not create the canon or the list of authoritative books, but they affirmed it. They affirmed the books that had the, the, the stamp of the divine, both in, because of what, the internal consistency there and how it was consistent with the other parts of Holy Scripture. In, in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul, Paul is wrapping up his letter, and he says this, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Paul, who are you? Who are you to, to say that your words have that kind of authority to be obeyed? Paul's an apostle, and he knows it. He knows that, that what he has just written is, is, is part of this thing that's going to be scripture. Second Peter, and this is Peter, at the end of Second Peter chapter 3, he, he says this about Paul's writings. Listen to this. He says, um, he says, count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given to him, as, verse 16, he does in all his letters, the letters of Paul, when he speaks in them of these matters. The, he says this, there are some things in them, in the letters of Paul, that are hard to understand. Would you agree with that? Yes. <laughs> some things Paul wrote, Peter confessed, are hard to understand. And he says, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. But here's the point I want you to hear. As they do the other scriptures. Peter, what did you just say? Yes. He said that what Paul wrote Difficult, hard to understand, is scripture. It's to be obeyed just as the Old Testament was to be obeyed. There's an authority there that we need to understand in the word of God. And the apostles carry on the, 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 the train of the, the, the prophets of Old Testament to give us God's word. And which, you know, so verse 15 and 16 go on. Why is this word important? Well, he lists a bunch of things here. It makes us wise to salvation. It makes us wise to salvation. It happened for Timothy as a, as a young man. It'll happen wherever in life when you cross that message and you believe it. Embrace it for yourself. Verse 16, the, the word is profitable for teaching. It's useful for teaching. This is doctrine, the explaining the truth of God, the truth of salvation, the truth about ourselves, the truth about death and life, the truth about heaven. Doctrine, teaching. The things that, that are revealed from God. The scripture is profitable for reproof, for reproof, exposing things that are wrong in ourselves, in our world, warning based on, the, on, on what the Word of God says, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the convicting power of God's Word. And then correction, putting things right, back to where they need to be, back to where they should be in our lives and in our world, in our church, the, the, the restorative power of God's Word. Sometimes preaching is like medicine, you know? It doesn't always taste good, but it's good for you. You know, the Apostle James, the Lord's half-brother, talked about the word as a mirror. As a mirror. It's a wonderful analogy. 
When you woke up this morning, hopefully before you left and went to the world, you looked at a mirror <laughs> to, to see what you look like, to make sure you were fit for the, for the world. <laughs> and, and maybe you saw something out of place. Maybe you saw that your clothes didn't match. Or maybe you saw that your hair, if you had hair, your hair needs to be combed, whatever. You saw something. I hope whatever you saw that's out of order, you said, I better fix that up. I better, I better clean that up. I better get it right. The word of God is a mirror. The word of God is not just to show us where we fall short. The word of God shows us where we need to, to step up and get our lives corrected. And then training in righteousness. Training in righteousness. It's this ongoing pursuit of holiness and righteousness and usefulness in the kingdom of God. Just as a child needs to be trained in the task of adulthood, <coughs> we need to be trained in living rightly, righteously in an unrighteous world. Matthew 6 is... Uh, 33, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. Righteousness. We need to be trained in righteousness. And the other thing, the last thing he lists is equipping the man of God for good works. Scripture equips the man of God. And Ephesians 4.12 says, says that the, the pastor teacher uh, 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 is given the authority, the responsibility to equip the saints for the works of ministry, the works of service, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain unity in mature manhood. There's an equipping function that the man of God, the pastor teacher has, of equipping the saints, those who are not the call to the, call to the ministry, the ministry quote-unquote, to equip them that they may serve in the world. They may do ministry out in the world. I always thought, looking at this verse as a younger believer, that this verse is for everybody. And it is for everybody, but more than for everybody. This verse, 16 and 17, is a specific word from Paul to Timothy, this young pastor, that you, young pastor, are, are to be the one to study the Word of God, to know the Word of God, that your church may know the Word of God. That it starts with you. That's where he's going. And then it, go, then it spills into everybody else. It's a challenge for me and for Craig, for anyone who, who's been called to the ministry of the Word. See, we need to have a, a biblical view of, of the importance of the Word of God when it's preached. People in our day are looking for discussions and conversations about the Bible, and that's good. They're looking for community, relationships. That's good. They're looking for commitment. To, to social justice and to reconciliation, wonderful. They're looking for a healthy children's ministry, healthy youth ministry. That's great. They're looking for a, a wonderful music ministry. That's good. All those things are good. We want excellence in all those areas. And those are elements of healthy, growing, Bible-grounded church working to, to change the world. But how important is preaching of the Word of God in people's minds? Is it primary? Is it foundational? The church's health rises and falls on this foundation. The preaching of Christ and the cross is what creates faith and creates the church. If the Word is most important, don't settle for anything less than a biblical preacher who wants to communicate the gospel of Christ from this pulpit. It's God's primary church growth, church sustaining strategy. The, op the application for our church that has a search committee is, is very obvious. 
the search committee needs to, to be, be alert. But not just that, because ultimately the congregation will vote. In light of these last days, we want a man who loves the word of God and is eager to spend time in it and then communicate it to the people. Who sees the, that the word is, is essential for his own soul and for the soul of his people. Who's seeking to equip the people through the word of God. Listen, as we, as we look to the issues that we face in our city, the solutions are not, ma are not magical. We don't need to look to City Hall for answers. We don't need to look to the schoolhouse for answers or the, the rec centers or the courtrooms. There's some insight they may give us. They have a certain role, but don't put all your hope on these human structures. People of God, the church, lives transformed by the Spirit of God is the basic remedy to the issues that we face during these last days. We need to follow the book, God's Word. That's God's counter move, you see? God's counter move is simple. Find a man who is committed to being an example of godliness, who's, who's willing to teach. Find a man who's willing to, to preach the Word of God clearly, lovingly, boldly. Find a man who wants to point the saints towards love and godliness. Find a man who wants to equip the saints to take this message to the office buildings and the schoolyards and the hospital centers of the city. And then the saints will be equipped to do ministry. Not just ministry inside these walls, but ministry that transforms lives and structures outside of these walls. And in Baltimore, will be truly transformed in a lasting way by the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Oh God, this is a familiar passage for some of us. And, uh, I pray you would use it, Lord, to encourage us and challenge us to be a, a church that's, that's grounded on your holy word. Thank you that you have spoken to us. Help us to study this word that we might be a people who have uh, uh, good news in, in this ungodly age. May it work in our own lives, our own hearts, our own families, and may it spill over to the families of this city. We'll give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen. And let's sing.